Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. What can radio waves from space tell us about the history and makeup of the universe? This month on Naked Astronomy, we'll be hearing about the latest results from the Planck Space Telescope, which has spent the past four years compiling the most detailed map which has ever been made of the remnant light from the Big Bang. I'm Dominic Ford, and also joining me this month is Ben Valsler. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dominic. Also coming up, we're going to hear from the amateur astronomer who set up a security camera to record shooting stars. And we've got more answers to your space science questions. So if you've got something you'd like us to tackle, then email astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Back in March, teams working with the Planck Space Telescope released the most detailed map that has ever been made of the remnant light from the Big Bang. Called the Cosmic Microwave Background, this light provides us with an image of how the universe appeared 400,000 years after the Big Bang, helping cosmologists to understand how the stars and galaxies that we see in the universe today actually formed. To find out more, Dominic spoke to Planck scientists Anthony Challoner and Stephen Grattan at the Kavli Institute in Cambridge and started by asking Anthony where the light of the cosmic microwave background actually came from. So the cosmic microwave background is essentially the oldest light in the universe that we can see. So since the universe is expanding, and we know that from observations that have been made in the 1920s now, if you sort of run the expansion backwards, you get to a state where the universe is much more dense and hence much hotter than it is now. And a natural consequence of a hot, dense early universe is that it should be filled with a bath of radiation, which cools down as the universe expands. And what physically produced that radiation? Ultimately, most of the the photons in the microwave background that we actually see were produced when electrons and positrons annihilated in the, the early universe. But much more interesting for our application is that that radiation was essentially always very tightly coupled to matter at early times when the universe was very dense. And that's just because the the universe was basically too hot for atoms to exist in neutral form. So the electrons got stripped off hydrogen atoms and we had what we call a plasma of radiation and charged particles. And because of the charged particles, the electrons that were present, photons in the microwave background scattered very efficiently off these charged particles. And that made the universe essentially very opaque. Uh, It was almost very foggy. But then, about 300,000 years after the Big Bang, when the universe was about a thousandth of its current size, the universe was cool enough then for neutral hydrogen to start forming. So at that point, which we call the epoch of recombination, electrons and protons recombined together to form neutral hydrogen. And effectively, the universe became transparent to the microwave background at that point. So by looking at the microwave background today, we essentially get a a picture of what the universe was like at this relatively short time after the Big Bang, as I said, when the universe was about a thousandth of its current size. Now, Stephen, the map that you get, I have to say, it's not a very beautiful map. It looks like a noisy map of, of hot and cold spots. What's that actually showing you? That's right. It's, uh, it's not like a picture. It's just the, 
basically showing us the very small deviations in temperature of the microwave background radiation from different directions corresponding to the properties of the universe at the time when the radiation was emitted. So cold spots correspond to regions of the universe that were slightly over-dense way back just 400,000 years after the Big Bang, and the red spots are the regions which were slightly under-dense. And it's worth pointing out that we normally see, the pictures we see are normally colour-enhanced, so to speak, and in fact the cosmic microwave background is, is actually very uniform and the deviations from uniformity are highlighted and amplified. So what you're saying is that the structure of the universe at an age of 500,000 years was very different to the structure we see today. There weren't stars and galaxies. When did those form? That's right. So they were formed uh, in the interim, basically between the 400,000 years and today. You know, we think the universe is roughly 14 billion years old. And as time went on, we, we believe that gravity caused the formation of uh, structure. So the slight over-densities grew and in the end uh, you know, formed stars and galaxies and, and so forth. And how do those fluctuations that we see in the early universe relate to the structures that we see now? It's not quite a one-to-one mapping because what we see back then will be like more directly affect parts of the universe that are a long way away from us now. Well, perhaps a more interesting question, actually, is how the fluctuations that we see in the microwave background were actually generated in the first place. And what we believe happened is that the fluctuations were generated uh, very, very early in the history of the universe during a period of cosmic inflation. So this is a strange sort of period where the universe underwent almost exponential expansion, so it was growing in size incredibly rapidly in a very short space of time. And a consequence of that is that very small length scales get stretched up to enormously large scales, which are sort of relevant for cosmic structures that we see today. Now, physics on small scales is a little bit complicated, and it's very different to the physics that we experience every day, and it's essentially ruled by the theory of quantum mechanics. So a natural consequence of inflation is that length scales which are small enough that they're being dominated by quantum effects get stretched very large and become cosmologically relevant. So you're saying that we can see quantum mechanical fluctuations on cosmological length scales? That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. So essentially everything that we have in the universe, we believe, is generated by these quantum processes in the very early universe. And the magic thing about inflation is that, well, it's a natural mechanism for doing this, but it also stretches them up to very large length scales that then become relevant for cosmology. But then interesting things happen because those fluctuations, if you had a region that was over-dense, it would tend to accrete surrounding matter and become a little bit more dense. But because this plasma that I referred to earlier containing you know, ionised matter and radiation, because it has, just like uh, a gas has pressure, so if you take a bicycle pump, uh, place your thumb over the end of it and try and ram the end of the bicycle pump in, the gas resists that. Uh, And it's the pressure in the gas, it's just the atoms in the gas colliding with the end of the cylinder that mean that you can't compress it easily. And the early universe is similar. So if you try to compress it, uh, the particles in the the universe, and the dominant ones actually are the radiation, um, they try and resist this compression. And what that does is naturally sets up acoustic sound waves in the plasma in the early universe. So if I get this right, you've got gravity which is trying to pull these clumps together. But as they clump together, the pressure goes up because that gas is getting compressed, that gas from radiation. So that's pushing them back out again. That's right, yeah. 
So we get these sort of sound waves that are generated as a, a consequence of that. And, and I call them sound waves because they really are. Just as sound waves are propagating in this room as I speak to you, those are fluctuations in the pressure in the air in this room. So we had fluctuations uh, in the pressure and the density of this plasma in the early universe. So we had all these sound waves oscillating around. And the nice thing is that that imprints a very specific scale on these almost scale invariant fluctuations that were generated by inflation. And it's that scale which is basically just how far sound can have propagated from the Big Bang until the, the epoch of recombination when the microwave background was released from matter. That particular length scale uh, is imprinted in the microwave sky, and it's what gives the sort of characteristic degree scale blobs that we see uh, when we look in the maps that Planck has produced of the CMB temperature. So what you're saying is just as we're speaking to one another, producing pressure waves in the air, what you're seeing in these fluctuations in the microwave backgrounds are density waves, pressure waves, sound waves, travelling through that primordial hydrogen. And by observing those fluctuations, you can understand how that material behaves in the very early universe. That's exactly right. So we can, we can learn about the material in the early universe. So uh, things like how much ordinary material is, the stuff that you and I are made of. We call that baryonic material. And also how much dark matter there is. That was Anthony Challoner from the Kavli Institute. And later in the show, we'll be rejoining him and Stephen Grattan to find out how those fluctuations can tell us so much about the universe. But first, we are joined by Naked Astronomy's regular cosmology expert, Andrew Ponson, from the University of Oxford. Andrew, thank you ever so much for joining us. Now, I know that the Planck results are very close to your heart, and we'll be asking for your thoughts on them later on. But first, if you could help us out with a question we've had from Chris Martin. So he's emailed astronomy at thenakedscientists.com to ask if there's any object in the universe which is truly stationary rather than moving around. What do you think? Well, the answer sort of comes in two stages, I suppose. The simple answer is is no. There isn't really any standard by which you could measure truly stationary. So, for instance, when we refer to things, say, moving at a certain speed, we're always really referring to moving relative to something else at a certain speed. A good example would be, you know, when you talk about the, the Earth moving around the sun, that's not the absolute motion of the earth in any sense it's how fast it is moving literally relative to the sun and and that's quite deep within physics in fact that there's no such thing as a actual speed there's only a speed relative to something else but if you look a little bit deeper there is a one sense in which you can sort of define what the actual speed of something in the universe is and actually that that's using the cosmic microwave background it turns out that you can tell how fast you're moving relative to the uh, overall patterns in the cosmic microwave background using something called the dipole of the cosmic microwave background. So if, if you start moving uh, in one direction, then the uh, light that you see from the direction you're moving towards gets slightly blue shifted and the light, if you look behind you, gets slightly red shifted. And so you can see that in particular when you look at the cosmic microwave background. So the, there is that, that sense in which you can do it, but for most purposes we, uh, we do like to think about speed as being relative to something else. So when we are actually talking about the speed at which something's moving, are there any preferred objects that we do use as that relative source? Do we, do we favour particularly big galaxies? Are there particularly bright stars or anything like that that we tend to use as our, our mark point? 
Well, for our own purposes, we very often, of course, use our own sun. Um, so if we relate things speed to our own Earth, that can get quite confusing because, of course, the Earth is moving differently at different times of the year. So we often try and subtract out the motion of the Earth and relate things to our own sun. That's one standard. Uh, another standard we quite often use is the centre of our own galaxy. That's sort of even better, in a sense, than the sun because the sun is moving round the galaxy in the same way the Earth is moving round the sun. So that can also add a layer of confusion. So depending on the application, really, we use different things. Thanks Andrew and we'll be coming back to you with another question later. Now it's time to take a look at what's been making the headlines lately and earlier I spoke to Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society and asked him what had caught his eye this month. Well I mean the, the thing about astronomy I guess is that there's always something you know whether it's something we see in the night sky or some ambitious new mission or some fantastic science result and this month there's a whole clutch of these things as ever so the first one I thought I'd talk about is a fairly ambitious proposal that's just being discussed to smash a probe into an asteroid. Now, that on itself, I suppose, doesn't sound that impressive. You think, oh, well, surely, you know, you could fly this thing through space and it bangs into them. But there is a, a really good scientific motive behind all of this, which is to dig into the surface and to analyze the interior structure, because we spend enough time worrying about asteroids hitting the Earth. And obviously, we have the very real impact of the, in the Chelyabinsk and the damage that did. So, you know, clearly there's reason to be concerned. And understanding these objects is a crucial part of that. If ever we're presented with the, the awful scenario of something big enough to hit the Earth and do significant damage, then knowing how to deal with it requires understanding the object in the first place. And this object, the impact of surface and interior science, or ISIS as it's being called, would hit a particular asteroid called 1999 RQ36. It's about half a kilometre across crash into it, and the aim is then to uh, dislodge material in the surface and study that to understand what it's like inside. Now, I gather the story that a comet might actually hit Mars next year. Well, uh, that, that's right, and not only do you have the discussion about, you know, trying to hit an asteroid deliberately, actually it makes a change, doesn't it, to have us throwing something at an asteroid rather than the uh, asteroid colliding with the Earth, but there's also Mars was faced with the very real prospect of a fairly significantly sized comet hitting it uh, at the end of the year actually in October this year. Now, the scientists studying it recalculated, and they think it will miss, but it'll only miss by about 68,000 uh, miles, uh, 110,000 kilometers. That's really very, very close. The comet's called C2013A1, bracket siding spring. That's the, the way we designate them. Most people would probably say comet siding spring, and it's because it's been discovered by the Siding Spring Survey Observatory in, in Australia. So effectively this time that the robotic system gets to name the, uh, the comet. But imagine if something like that was happening to the Earth. I mean, apart from, okay, we'd, we'd stop worrying once we realized it wasn't going to hit us, but that would be incredible as a sight. I mean, having some comet going past the Earth, significantly closer than the Moon, that really would be quite a spectacular sight. So there are discussions about how it might be possible to use some of the spacecraft, the rovers on the surface, and the orbiters going around uh, Mars to look at this. It may not be very easy, but I think they would have quite a view if they do manage to pull that off. So how big roughly is this object, say, in comparison to the object that figured the extinction of the dinosaurs? Well, uh, this comet signing spring is a somewhat smaller than that, that object that 
possibly led to the extinction of the dinosaurs, the, the likely the asteroid. But uh, nonetheless, a few kilometers across, it seems to be a reasonable estimate. And if something like that hit the surface of the planet, you're talking about a very, very powerful explosion, I mean, the equivalent of millions of megatons. So they do an enormous amount of damage, actually. Now, sticking with Mars, I gather we've got some pictures of the first spacecraft which sent images from Mars's surface. Well, that's right. The Mars 3 mission was launched by the Soviet Union right back in the early 1970s, and it was actually the first spacecraft to make a successful soft landing on Mars in December 1971. Sadly, it only lasted about 14 and a half seconds, and it became victim to what's been described as the Great Martian Ghoul that leads to the uh, demise of any uh, Earth-based spacecraft that go that way. Now, of course, actually, we've had quite a lot of successful missions, but there is the joke that because it's really quite difficult to get things to work on Mars, and the Russians certainly had a lot of bad luck with this, that spacecraft often get there and don't work as they should. Um, so mastery only lasted just over 10 seconds, 14 and a half seconds before it shut down. And it sent back an image which was sort of dubious. The Soviet Academy of Sciences wasn't really convinced it showed very much at all. But nonetheless, it was the first transmission from the surface of Mars. And anyway, these amateurs have looked at the archive from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been studying the surface in quite a lot of detail, and a lot of these uh, these data is available. And I don't know how they did it, because I looked at the images, and you can see basically some some dots which, when you zoom in on them, are reasonably convincing. But they're fairly convinced that they found the location of this spacecraft, its heat shield, and possibly its parachute. So it's really intriguing. It demonstrates at some level, I guess, how good these orbiters spacecraft are in comparison with the 1970s when the the vehicle that accompanied this Mars 3 lander, the orbiter, only sent back about 60 pictures. Now, that's it's not bad. It studied the surface. It sent pictures of mountains and so on. The Russians were unlucky in the sense that they got there and there was a dust storm on, so a lot of the surface was obscured. But uh, nonetheless, it's an impressive achievement. It just does demonstrate, I guess, citizen science and its value again, the fact that people are prepared to go trawl through this data to find these things. I guess it's interesting to see how the materials have survived over the intervening 30 years. Well, that's right. I I suspect if you went down there, given the nature of Mars and the fact you have these regular dust storms, I imagine that the the spacecraft would be covered with various bits of material. I mean, there's a a thin atmosphere, a thin poisonous carbon dioxide atmosphere. It's a harsh environment. It's very cold and, and so on. But it does lift dust up and deposit it and remove it from objects. So that's always a factor in planning space missions there as well. If you want to send rovers to explore the surface, like the Mars Curiosity Lab, you have to allow for that. Now, stories about Mars have been something of a theme this month because there's also been headlines about plans to send people on a one-way trip to Mars. What's that Well, there, there seems to be a clutch of private space mission ideas to go to Mars at the moment, and the, the latest one is Mars One. Uh, Mars One is a one-way mission to Mars, so their proposal is to launch in only a few years' time for a fairly cheap, by these standards, price tag of $6 billion, which compares very well, but that's perhaps a reason for scepticism with the NASA estimates of $100 billion or so, or even more. And then the idea would be that humans would settle in about uh, 2023. They send the first spacecraft there to start preparing sites, searching for sites, and so on. The idea is basically that they would sort of live off the land, that they would get there, that the equipment would be deposited there for them, and then they would start using the resources you can find on the surface, so setting up solar panels, to using sunlight, obviously, to power electricity, uh, trying to grow things in the soil, and so on. It is very, very ambitious, and I think I'm a bit sceptical that this will ever happen, because apart from the very low-cost price tag for these things, I mean, $6 billion is a lot of money, but it still sounds pretty cheap uh, for what they want to do. 
it just also seems incredibly risky, and I, I just suspect they won't manage to raise the money, um, or it, it's also actually perhaps not all that technologically feasible either. One other objection, too, is that there's something called the Planetary Protection Protocol, which is designed to stop us from contaminating places like Mars, because if there is primitive life there, what we don't want to do is turn up in a perhaps less than sterile way, because you can't really do that with people. You can do it more easy with, far more easy with spacecraft and end up contaminating the surface and perhaps you know, causing harm to life on the surface as well. So for those reasons, my honest hunch is it probably won't happen. I mean, it's backed by some very impressive senior scientists, but I just don't know, very unconvinced that this will ever happen. It does all sound quite incredible. Now, a couple of months ago, we talked to John Richer on the podcast about the Atacama Large Millimetre Array. I gather you got an update on that this month. Yeah, I mean, ALMA, the, the Atacama Large Millimetre Array, is really doing good stuff and coming on stream, and it's uh, still being built. But this is an amazing project whereby you've got these dishes that can observe the universe at what's called millimetre and submillimetre wavelengths. So if you're familiar with the spectrum, uh, if you imagine going beyond the red end of the spectrum, think of the rainbow, into the infrared, and then even beyond that into the region we call submillimetre and millimetre, if you go beyond that, you go into more conventional radio waves, then can study the universe with particular dish setups like ALMA. And what it can do is look at objects at very high resolution. And the advantage of detecting that kind of radiation as well is that it cuts through dust and so on. So you can study things that are obscured by dust clouds if you look at them with uh, conventional visible light. Now, uh, what ALMA's done is this amazing result where it's observed about 100 galaxies in the space of a few hours. Really quite impressive stuff. Whereas the telescopes that looked at it before that, it took them a number of years to accumulate that data. So it demonstrates both that the system is working very well, that it's really sensitive, and that it's really promising a lot of stuff coming up in the future. My guess is that we're going to see an awful lot of results from this telescope over the next few years, some very sharp, very high-resolution maps of things, and we're going to be able to study the early universe, and all of those things astronomers get excited about. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, Ben, I gather you've been looking at a story about measurements of dark matter on the International Space Station. Uh, yes, that's right. I feel a little bit intimidated, actually, talking about this story in front of Andrew. So, Andrew, you are more than welcome to uh, to dive in if I'm getting things a bit wrong. But a particle detector on the International Space Station has found evidence that's consistent with one hypothesis for dark matter. And that's according to research published this month in Physical Review Letters. This is using the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, or AMS, and it's a particle physics experiment that was delivered to the ISS back in May 2011. By July 2012, it had recorded the presence of around 18 billion cosmic rays. So it's doing a very good job of measuring these things. It's been described by Mission Commander Mark Kelly as the pinnacle of the science that the ISS will do. It's designed to detect these high-energy cosmic rays. These are subatomic particles and things like helium nuclei that have been accelerated to nearly the speed of light. It has a number of very ambitious scientific goals. It's, uh, it wants to accurately measure space radiation environments in order to understand how best to put people out into space. It also wants to understand why the universe doesn't consist of equal quantities of matter and antimatter. Now, Samuel Ting from MIT and colleagues have announced a set of results that, in their words, show the existence of a new physical phenomenon and could be a sign of dark matter. 
They have detected more than 400,000 positrons, that's the antimatter equivalent of electrons. And that's considerably more than expected, because antimatter is actually quite scarce in our universe. So where is it coming from? Well, one hypothesis is that it's actually coming from collisions between particles that might make up dark matter, and these are called neutralinos. That's an exciting result, because dark matter has been a slippery customer so far. We've talked about it a lot on Naked Astronomy. It only interacts with the more familiar baryonic matter and normal matter through gravity and it doesn't interact with light and that's why we call it dark matter so it's been a real pain to study but this isn't yet definitive proof these positrons could be coming from uh, what i'm going to call a more mundane source but are still quite an exciting source in and of themselves and that's pulsars these are rapidly spinning neutron stars they're the remains of a giant star that's exploded they can fling particles out into space including enough positrons to match the results that we're seeing the AMS experiment in time should be able to settle the debate, though, and they're going to collect more data at higher energies, and ultimately they should be able to discount either the dark matter hypothesis or the pulsar hypothesis. But it's hoped that by the time the mission ends in 2020, we'll have a, a definitive answer and we'll bring dark matter out into the light. Andrew, being a cosmologist, this, of course, is really your area. But what do you think of this story? Well, it's very interesting, actually. And as Samuel Ting said, there is clearly something going on there. There's an excess of positrons, more positrons than you'd expect at high energies. But having said that, there is a, a level on which it's slightly disappointing because before the official press release came out, he had actually hinted to people that they had a really good indication of, of something very exciting, I think it was... Uh, uh, his his own words. And what a lot of people read into that would be that the signal would be very distinctive of dark matter. And, and that was a, a genuine possibility. If you see positrons going up to a certain energy and then suddenly the, the number of positrons drops off very quickly at a certain energy, that would be a, a real smoking gun, actually, for dark matter, because it would be indicating to you that there's a, there's a maximum energy to the positrons that can be produced which would correspond to the energy inside the mass of a, of a dark matter particle um, as it was it's clear there is something going on but on the other hand it's been clear that something is going on for a while now and this doesn't really clear up just what it is that's going on but it's certainly one to watch you're listening to nate astronomy with ben valsler and with me dominic ford now the solar system is full of tiny pieces of gritty debris much of this material is released from the surfaces of comets when they pass close to the sun and form bright tails. When these gritty particles strike the Earth's atmosphere, they can produce shooting stars, and by observing when and where shooting stars appear in the night sky, we can learn much more about the solar system's population of comets. We're joined on the line now by Nick James. He's an amateur astronomer and member of the British Astronomical Association's Council, and he's mounted a camera on the side of his house to record as many shooting stars as possible. Now, Nick, what led you to set this camera up? OK, so one of the things about meteors is because they do generally occur quite infrequently, observing them visually can be quite difficult because A, you have to be outside in the cold and B, you have to be very patient waiting for these meteors or shooting stars to appear. So one of the things these days that we as astronomers have got, which basically comes from the security industry, is that there are very, very sensitive television cameras around, and they've been designed 
uh, not to allow us astronomers to observe shooting stars, but to allow people to observe people doing nefarious things in the dead of night. So they're, they're very sensitive television cameras. They're usually black and white, but they are so sensitive that it's possible to actually take images of things effectively by starlight. So these cameras are fantastically useful for taking images of the night sky, particularly for things like shooting stars or meteors, because these objects are moving rapidly across the sky. So the advantage of having a television camera type system is you can actually record them as they're moving across the sky. So you can get information about their apparent velocity across the sky. You can get information about how they brighten and fade as they, as they burn up in the atmosphere. So lots of interesting scientific information. So I've got a picture here of the camera that you're using. It does look very much like a security camera on the side of your house, just pointed up at the sky. How much of the time are you observing? Okay, so it's um, controlled by a computer, so uh, it doesn't involve me having to do anything at all. The camera operates all the time that the sky is dark. So from the end of twilight in the evening to the beginning of twilight in the morning, the camera's running and the video stream from the camera is being recorded by a computer. The reason the camera looks like just a normal security camera that would normally be looking downwards is that that's indeed exactly what it is, and it's in one of the security camera housings that are designed to allow cameras to operate outside. So it's waterproof, it's heated to stop the glass at the front misting up, and the only difference is that it's pointing upwards rather than downwards. So if this camera's running the whole time, does that mean you have to be watching it the whole time? No, thank goodness, uh, because obviously the, the camera is producing hours and hours of video. And so one of the things that we can do once the video is in a computer is that we can use software in the computer to replace an observer. So what the software is looking for is the signature of a shooting star or a meteor crossing the video frame. And it needs to reject other things. For instance, where I live, I've got a lot of aircraft that move around the sky. Now, aircraft tend to move more slowly than shooting stars. But the software isn't infallible, and sometimes it picks up things that aren't shooting stars. In fact, one of the things that it picks up quite frequently in my video are um, birds at night, high-altitude birds flying along, illuminated by the streetlights of the town where I live. So there are some things still that the human observer has to do, but the computer does the main work. You've said that you're using the standard security cameras. To what extent is the whole system built out of off-the-shelf components, or have you had to build a lot of parts yourself? Um, as far as the hardware is concerned, it's all off-the-shelf. So the, um, the video cameras, the camera housing, and the digitizer that's used to convert the video into a format suitable for a computer... They were all bought off eBay. They're all standard parts. The software, though, is software that I've written myself, and there are two reasons for that, I guess. One is that I'm a software geek, and I just like to write my own software so that I understand how things work. The other is that all of the other software that's available to do this kind of job didn't do quite exactly what I wanted. I wanted a system that would operate essentially completely autonomously, on a very low, uh, low-end Linux-based PC. So the analysis is done offline. I think it's quite an incredible point, given we've just been hearing about the Planck Space Telescope, which is 
a multi-hundred millions of euros project that you're managing to record these images with stuff that you've just bought off eBay. What roughly is the cost of this kind of camera? Okay, the camera itself is actually quite expensive if bought new. They're about £300 or so. But I mostly picked the whole system up, including the PC, the housing, the camera, and the digitizer card, and, and the lens as well. For about, I think it was about under £200 for the whole setup. eBay is very useful for this kind of thing, as long as you keep a close eye on it and scour it, the kit that you want. The particular camera I use is called the Waytech 902H2. It's particularly good, but quite expensive. There are now a lot more cameras available, which are actually called board cameras. So these are cameras which aren't actually in a, a housing. They're little cameras on PCBs that if you've got a bit of electronic knowledge, you can wire up and use. Now, I think it's about a year or two now that you've been operating the camera. What have you managed to see? OK, lots and lots of shooting stars. You're right. I've had the camera running for about two years or so. As you know, last year, the uh, the weather down in the southeast of England wasn't brilliant. But surprisingly enough, you still get quite a lot of clear skies. It's just they tend to occur at 2 or 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning when everyone's asleep. So the camera records that. It records normally on, on nights when it's clear and there's no major meteor shower. It'll record maybe 3 or 4 meteors an hour. On nights of meteor showers, it records a lot more. Um, and on the Germanids last year, I think it was it recorded something like 170 meteors from twilight in the evening to twilight the following morning. But the things that are really interesting it records are bright, bright objects called fireballs. So these are rather larger objects that enter the Earth's atmosphere. Rather than just burning up uh, as a, a fairly faint shooting star, they show lots and lots of detail as they move across the sky. So their brightness, they kind of show explosions as they go across the sky. They're very bright. And the very brightest one of those that I picked up was a Leonid meteor back, I think, at the end of 2011, in November 2011. That meteor was so bright that its terminal burst was actually brighter than the full moon. Now, I know you're working with other observers on this. Are you keen to set up more cameras like this? Yes. One of the things, for sure, is I want to actually encourage other people to do this work so that we can actually do what's called triangulation on meteor trails. So if you have two cameras, maybe uh, 50, 60 kilometres apart, which are pointing so that they actually look at the same part of the atmosphere, then when a meteor comes into the atmosphere and the trail is recorded on the video, the two cameras see that trail projected against different parts of the night sky. And you can measure the positions of the trail, and from that you can actually triangulate on the, the actual physical trail of the meteor in the Earth's atmosphere. And that's really interesting because it also allows you then to project back to where the meteor came from and calculate its orbit. So, uh, yes, I'd like to do that. And, in fact, one of the reasons I'm trying to develop the system to be as autonomous as possible is to get it to the point where effectively other people can just take the equipment, set it up in their houses and basically just connect it to the internet so that we can have a network of these cameras around to do this work. 
Now, it's time to take some more questions. So before you go, Nick, we've had one that you might be able to help us with. We've had an email from Kim who has heard that the CCD sensors used in many digital cameras are sensitive not only to visible light, but also to infrared light, light that we can't see. So if Kim is using his camera to take pictures of the night sky, would he actually get better pictures if he puts an infrared filter on the front of the camera? Nick, how easy is it to photograph the night sky just using a standard camera? Very easy indeed, actually, and it's another area where we've been able to benefit as astronomers from developments in the commercial field. Modern digital cameras are remarkably good at being able to take pictures of the night sky. They're very sensitive, and of course you can see the results immediately. So basically, if if you've got a point-and-shoot type camera, what you need to look for is to be able to set it either into night mode or into a long exposure mode, which allows you to actually take a long exposure looking at the sky. Preferably, you want to set the camera so that it's manual focus, focused on infinity, because most autofocus cameras find it very difficult to focus on stars in the night sky. But if you do that, you set the camera up on a tripod, take an exposure, maybe of five, ten seconds or so, you'll get a nice view of the night sky. And if you do it sometime around twilight or when there's an interesting object in the sky, like the crescent moon or planets or so, you can get a very pleasing picture. If you've got a more advanced camera, like a digital SLR camera, those are absolutely ideal for taking pictures of the night sky. And what about the question of infrared versus visible light? Do you think that Kim's going to get better pictures by filtering out the infrared that would otherwise get onto that sensor? Okay, well, he's certainly right that the sensors are sensitive out to the infrared, so well beyond what the human eye um, is sensitive to. But the camera manufacturers actually have already put an infrared filter in there, and the reason they do that is that the lenses that uh, have been designed for cameras were designed mainly for the use with film. And film was not sensitive into the infrared, and so the, the lenses really only focus light correctly in the visual range of the spectrum. If there wasn't an infrared filter in the camera, you would find your pictures being rather fuzzy because the, this infrared light isn't focused very well by the lenses. Now, it, it turns out that for astronomers who really want to take deep, sensitive images of the night sky, this infrared filter is a bit of a problem because it cuts out some of the light from some of the more interesting objects. And so they've gone to the uh, the extremes of actually taking their cameras apart and taking these filters out and then using either telescopes that don't have lenses in them so they don't have this problem with focus or using other filters so that they can correct the focus problem. But that's certainly not something I would recommend to average users. Thank you very much. That was Nick James from the British Astronomical Association. Now, Dominic, here's another question, one that you might be able to help us with. Kevin Bull has got in touch via Twitter to ask how massive an asteroid or comet or similar has to be before gravity will actually pull it in so much that it makes it spherical. What do you think? In recent years, that's actually been quite a topical question because it has to do with how we characterise and describe the objects that we see in the solar system. Now, the traditional view has been that you have a population of asteroids, which are small, rather knobbly, potato-shaped objects, and then you have a separate population of much larger planets, which are the spherical bodies in the solar system. What we now know is that, in fact, there's a whole spectrum of masses of objects, ranging from pieces of dust, as we've heard just now, right up to massive planets like 
the gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter. So people have looked for masses where the physics of these objects change, where they start to take on radically different appearances, and they've given these different categories of objects different names. And as part of that process, you may remember back in 2006, Pluto went from being a planet to now being called a dwarf planet. So if you look at low-mass potato-shaped objects which haven't formed into spherical surfaces, those are the asteroids as before. At a mass of about one ten-thousandth the mass of the Earth, these objects start to form into a more spherical shape, and they're what we call the dwarf planets, and actually in the inner solar system there's only one of those, and that's the asteroid Ceres. Now moving up in mass, eventually something becomes so massive that it can disrupt the orbits of everything around it, and that's when we start to call that object not a dwarf planet, but a full-blown planet. And that's why in 2006 it was decided that Pluto isn't really a planet, because we think it's orbiting in a cloud of objects we call the Cupier Belt, and so there's other objects that are intersecting its orbit. Surely the physical properties of the material are what decides the shape. So if you have gas, it's far easier, because gas we know will will flow more easily, it's far easier for that to be a sphere than it would be for if we had, you know, watermelon-sized lumps of rock. They're less likely to become spherical just because of their original shape. That's absolutely true, and there are objects in the solar system with quite a range of compositions. The asteroids are quite rocky, the comets are rather more icy, and it also depends upon the history of the object, because if it's had a recent collision, then it may have a disrupted surface. So when I say one ten-thousandth of the mass of the Earth, that's a pretty approximate figure. Thank you very much. And we've got another question also about solar system objects. So we're going to put this one to Andrew Ponson, who's still with us. David Gould has been reading about asteroid 2012 DA14. That's the one that flew within a whisker of the Earth in February this year. He's wondering whether the Earth's orbit changed at all when this asteroid actually flew past. Andrew, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the Earth's orbit would have changed, but only by the most incredibly small amount. Um, it, it's really mind-bogglingly small. And to, to give you some idea of, of how small this is, I decided actually to calculate something which was a, a, a much larger effect in terms of the changing the orbit of the Earth, which is the, the Russian meteor actually colliding with the Earth. You remember around the same time, a meteor actually came in and actually exploded in the atmosphere but that's a that's a much bigger effect now the 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 way that the orbit of the earth can be changed by any of these effects is because newton said and it's still true today uh, that every uh, force has an equal and opposite force so if the earth is exerting a force on an asteroid then the uh, asteroid is also exerting a a force on the earth now in the the case of the the russian meteor it becomes particularly obvious that the russian meteor comes in with a certain amount of what we call momentum so it's it's traveling at a certain speed and there's a certain amount of it and in the end uh, it's going to burn up in the atmosphere or collide with the earth all of that momentum that it's bringing in with it is actually transferred to the earth so for the case of the russian meteor Estimates at the moment say it was probably about 10,000 tonnes of rock travelling at about 30 kilometres every second. So you can use some pretty uh, basic physics to work out how much of an effect that could have on the Earth. Uh, And you come to the answer that the Earth's trajectory is changed, well, or or the speed of the Earth is changed by around 1.6 metres 
per million years. So, so this is really a, a very, very tiny shift in the speed. And that's what happens when you actually slam an entire asteroid into the Earth. So you can imagine when the effects are much more subtle, when uh, the uh, effects are just coming through a very slight gravitational force, it's really going to be absolutely tiny. Thank you, Andrew. Dominic? Now we've got a question here from Jared Zolna, who wonders where the oxygen on the Earth might have come from. Was it formed in space, or can a planet produce its own oxygen? We're joined now by Kirsten Gostrock from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, Western Australia. Kirsten, what do you think? Well, as many people probably already know, oxygen is the third most common element in the universe after hydrogen and helium. But it's very reactive, so it'll combine with pretty much anything, which means there's not much good old O2, molecular oxygen, for breathing left around in many places in the universe. So the majority of the universe's oxygen is produced in stars as part of the nuclear fusion that um, stars produce their energy with. But then how do you get molecular oxygen and get such an oxygen-rich atmosphere like the Earth's? How that actually happened on Earth is that a bit less than two and a half billion years ago, we had a great oxygenation event, or otherwise known as the oxygen catastrophe for the oxygen intolerant life that was on Earth at the time. And this was caused by tiny little cyanobacteria, organisms that actually produce oxygen through photosynthesis. So they started producing oxygen about 200 million years before the great oxygenation event. But at first, all the oxygen they produced was snaffled by the iron and other organic matter on Earth. But then eventually, about 200 million years later, those things were full. They became saturated. And so then the excess oxygen started accumulating in the atmosphere, giving us oxygen breathers a chance to evolve. So in that sense, yes, a planet can produce its own oxygen. You just need to make sure you've got a whole bunch of blue bacteria. And Kirsten, we've got another question that you might be able to help us with. Nitin Ramadurai has got in touch. He's writing in from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He points out that all of the heavy elements on Earth, we are told, come from the cores of massive stars that then explode and spread them out. But does that mean, if we've got lots of those elements here on Earth, that there must be the remains of a massive star in our cosmic backyard? Nathan is exactly right. We, we know that the sun has too many heavy elements to be a first-generation star and that those heavy elements must have come from somewhere. So we think it's fairly clear that the sun did form from the leftovers of the explosive end of a star, like a supernova. And you're exactly right, Nathan, that it's probable there was a black hole or a neutron star formed at the same time as the sun's parent cloud. But one thing we know is that in a supernova, the neutron star that forms gets a giant kick because supernovae explosions aren't nice and symmetrical. So this kick basically pushes the uh, neutron star out of the supernova at about 100 kilometres per second or thereabouts, which if you extrapolate that out over the sun's 5 billion year life is about 500 kiloparsecs of travel for the neutron star, which is much bigger than the Milky Way. From here to the centre of the Milky Way, it's about 8 kiloparsecs. So that puts that 500 kiloparsecs into a lot of context. It's it's absolutely massive distance. Now, of course, the neutron star hasn't actually just gotten shot out of the Milky Way. It's probably whizzing around in orbit somewhere far away from us right now. But could we detect it if it were nearby? 
So we could. So it really depends how close it is. So neutron stars, uh, when they formed, they can be spinning around quite fast. And provided they're oriented at the right angle to us, they can become what we call a pulsar. So they send out these pulses of radio waves that can be detected using radio telescopes. But unfortunately, they don't last forever, pulsars. They actually slow down. And so a 5 billion-year-old neutron star is very unlikely to actually still be a pulsar. So even if we did have a neutron star and it didn't get such a big kick or it didn't get a kick at all in the supernova, maybe it was a really weird one that formed, um, ended up forming the sun, and it was nearby to us, it wouldn't be pulsing. It wouldn't be alive anymore, I guess you could say. So we wouldn't be able to detect it through those methods. We might be able to detect it through its gravitational interaction, but it would have to be really quite close for us to do that, within about 150 light years or about 50 parsecs. Kirsten, thank you very much. That was Kirsten Goschalk from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, Western Australia. Now it's time to rejoin Anthony Chaloner and Stephen Gratton from the Cavley Institute in Cambridge to find out more about the latest results from the Planck Space Telescope. I asked Stephen how the Planck teams have managed to get from the maps of the cosmic microwave background that we heard about earlier to being able to make statements about the age and makeup of the universe. So that's a really good question and we almost end up going the other way around in that we take a model of the universe and then run it forward with a computer to make a prediction of what sort of microwave sky an observer would see in that model and then we compare that to to what we do observe. And it's worth stressing that we only make statistical predictions about what this sky should look like. So we're we're not looking like for an exact picture-to-picture match. We're rather looking for statistical match. Because, as Anthony was saying earlier, that the fluctuations we believe were generated quantum mechanically, so they're intrinsically random, but their amplitudes, so the typical strengths of the fluctuations, are predicted by the theory, and that's the kind of thing we want to compare to. So what you're saying is you're not looking at particular fluctuations that you see on that map and trying to model the physics at work in that particular fluctuation. You're looking for the broad kinds of structures that you see and then trying to make computer models that reproduce those broad kinds of fluctuation. That's right. For a given cosmology, you could imagine, well, say the universe was made of this much dark matter, this much normal matter, this much radiation, and so on. Uh, You could make a prediction statistically of what the cosmic microwave background should look like. So if a cosmological model predicts that these fluctuations are too big or too small, then you can immediately rule that out that's as being right. the wrong model. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of way it works. So we run tens of thousands of computer simulations and find the ones that fit best and the ones that fit not too badly, and then that allows us to infer what the universe must have been like. Now, this has taken the Planck team some time, hasn't it? Because Planck was launched back in May 2009... And it's only in February 2013 that you've released your first cosmology results. It's taken you a long time to run those computer simulations. That's part of the problem. The other thing is you have to remember that the way Planck slowly scans the sky, it does take it some time to build up these pictures. So it took a few months for Planck to get into position, then another year and a half, well, 15 months to take the the data that we're analysing. And then we've got to sort out problems with the data. We've got to get our computer programs working. And then the final thing, the actual like last stage of the final running, um, 
you know, it maybe took about a, a week on a supercomputer. So it hasn't literally been a case of computing time that's held us back. It's been understanding the data well enough to have confidence in, in the results we get. And what are the key discoveries that Planck's made? Well, the surprising thing really for us all, I think, is just how well the standard cosmological model fits. Basically, anything we can think of that might be a variation or a, an improvement to the standard model doesn't do any better than the base models. So nature is actually rather simple. I guess that's always a bit of a disappointment for you. Well, it's not for us to decide what the, what the universe is made of. We're, we're just doing our best to, to measure it. And what we can say is the Planck data has been so good that it's been able to test out a lot of alternative, more complicated hypotheses, and none of them do any better than the simpler ones. So one of the very interesting things from the perspective of early universe physics um, is that the fluctuations that we measure in the microwave background are somewhat more random than some physicists were hoping. So in very simple models for this inflationary expansion that I mentioned that we believe happened in the early universe, you would expect the fluctuations to be what we call Gaussian. That's essentially as random as, uh, as they can be. But in more complicated models, so perhaps involving more than one agent that actually gave rise to the, the inflationary expansion, you can get more complicated statistics, so in some sense less random statistics. And we call this non-Gaussianity. So many of the listeners will probably be familiar with the idea of, of Gaussianity uh, through the sort of bell-shaped or normal distribution that you, you might have met at school. I think I remember when I was at school, we measured everyone's height in the class and we had an average height and some spread around that. And, and when we plotted a bar chart of how many people were of different heights, it, it formed this bell shape, this normal distribution. That's correct. So if you did that for one half of the population, so if you did it for the male population, you would indeed find that it's a bell-shaped curve centred on some value. And if you repeated that for the female population, you'd find similar results, except the distribution would probably be a little less wide and it would be centred at a slightly lower value. And that just reflects the fact that on average men are taller than women. So if you now measure the entire population together, you're essentially superposing those two things together, so the heights of the men and the women. And what you end up with is a distribution that isn't quite actually a bell shape. So it has some distortions around that simple bell shape or normal distribution. And that's very similar to the sort of measurement that we actually make in this cosmological context. You could imagine we try and measure this sort of histogram or probability distribution for the temperature fluctuations on the sky. And it is indeed very close to bell-shaped rather than having this sort of distortion that would tell us something interesting about the statistics beyond the simple Gaussian case that simple inflation models would predict. So you're measuring the structure of these random fluctuations, and if they were influenced by any one process, you would expect them to have a bell-shaped profile in their characteristics. But what you're saying is that you're looking to see if it's in fact two bell shapes next to one another which would indicate that there were two processes going on. Well, it's obviously a little more complicated than that, and I wouldn't want to push it quite as far as the, the analogy that you've just made. But, yes, we, we, we look for departures from these sort of Gaussian bell-shaped statistics, and we basically don't find any. So, you know, we've done a lot of detailed tests of what these distributions ought to look like for various models of inflation, and we've confronted those with the data, and there is no evidence for anything beyond the simplest 
Gaussian models. So looking ahead, Planck is still an operating spacecraft. What's next? So, well, there's two aspects to that question. So Planck is indeed, at least part of Planck is still operating. So Planck is actually two instruments, a high-frequency instrument, which measures at frequencies from 100 gigahertz to 850 gigahertz, and then a lower-frequency instrument uh, that measures from 30 gigahertz to 70 gigahertz. And the high-frequency instrument has to operate at a lower temperature, and that means it needed onboard coolants, cryogens, which have now depleted. So the high-frequency instrument actually stopped working in January 2012. But the low-frequency instrument is still working and is expected to keep taking data until about the summer of this year, say August 2013, at which point it will also be switched off. So that's what the spacecraft itself is doing, but we have data both from the high-frequency and the low-frequency instrument already that we haven't properly analysed yet. So as Steve mentioned, the data we've looked at so far is 15 months' worth of data, but we've got at least twice as much of that data from further surveys of the sky, which we basically just haven't had time to to look at in detail yet. And are there plans for future space missions to make even more detailed maps of the CMB? There are. There have been several missions proposed, both to the North American Space Agency and also in Europe uh, and in Japan, actually. And so far, none of these have been selected, possibly because, quite rightly, the agencies were interested to know what would come out of the Planck results before they commit the substantial funds that these missions cost. Now, I guess it's interesting that the standard model of cosmology has held up in the Planck results, but I guess it also means that that Planck hasn't overturned our view of the universe. Does that make it more difficult, do you think, to propose future missions? Well, that's obviously a very good question. So, as we've said, Planck has made this remarkable test at incredibly high precision of the standard cosmological model. But I think many cosmologists do feel that it it will crack at some point. So if you look close enough and in enough detail with enough precision, you know, the the model will fall apart at some point. Anthony Challoner from the Kavli Institute in Cambridge. And earlier we also heard from Anthony's colleague Stephen Gratton, who's also based at the Kavli Institute. Now, Andrew Ponson is still with us. This is, as we said earlier, very close to your heart. What have you made of the recent Planck results, Andrew? Well, the first thing to say is it's clear that the Planck satellite is working astoundingly well. If you take a look at the uh, images, the maps that they've released, they really, they take high-resolution cosmology to to another level. So the the technology has really proved itself. And this enormous collaboration, I mean, it's it's one of the biggest astronomy collaborations that's ever been put together, has come out trumps, really, and uh, done a very good job of analysing what information is, is coming back from that satellite. Now, Andrew, Anthony mentioned that next year Planck will produce some polarisation results. What are you looking forward to there? Well, the polarisation results will really open the the next chapter, if you like, on the, the cosmic microwave background. In a sense, most of what you can do just by measuring the intensity of the light is now done, now that these Planck intensity results have been released. So this is the next chapter, and there are lots of things you can do with polarisation, but the really eye-catching one is that gravitational waves, these are things predicted by Einstein's theory of the the way that gravity works and things that would be generated by this inflation process, could show up 
in the polarisation results. They're very hard to pick out from just measuring the intensity of the light, but it, it might be possible to pick them up in the polarisation results. It's like another way, if you like, of, of getting to start understanding the physics behind inflation rather than just a sort of broad statement that something like inflation happened. So if it carries on being a sort of non-detection for non-Gaussianity, then all eyes are going to be on the polarisation to see if we can pull something out of that. Thank you very much, Andrew. That's Andrew Ponson from Oxford University, regular naked astronomer. And that's all we have time for this month. But as always, you can find out more on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by Dominic Ford and me, Ben Valsler, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council.